Christmas is a great time of year, right? I mean, how, how many is this your, one of your favorite times of year, huh? Come on, how many loves, how many just love Christmas? Come on. A, bunch, a big section here that don't love Christmas. We need to have conversation about that a little closer maybe. Get to have some interviews, find out what's going on. Yeah, Christmas is, you know, kind of generally, I mean, we kind of love Christmas, right? It's just fun. It's the lights and, you know, the Christmas trees and the songs and the, you know, the decorations and Jesus. Yeah, I don't forget about him, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, there's something about it that's just fun, right? It's kind of a festive feel. And, and I don't know about you, but, you know, I, some of us are, you you know, you can't have Christmas music or Christmas decorations up until after Thanksgiving, right? So Black Friday is not just Black Friday. It's also Light Friday, right? I mean, it's Decoration Friday. It's like, you know, everything happens on Friday, right? Uh, so, but, you know, I used to be that way, but I've changed. And I think it's, it happened when my daughter went to London. Uh, she studied abroad for a semester, and it was kind of the fall semester. And so she was over there, and, and it, she was like, she got all excited because November 1st, everything changed to Christmas, because they didn't have this Thanksgiving holiday. Now, Thanksgiving's a great holiday, don't get me wrong, but, but it's like they just, everything was Christmas November 1st on, and so they were all decorated and everything, and it was awesome. I was like, you know what? I kind of like that idea, right? And so this year, I tried to get decorations going November 1st. My wife was like, not a chance. We're not doing it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Come on, woman. But no, she was really busy with stuff, so... <laughs> Yeah, she was super busy with stuff. It just didn't work this year. But maybe next year, she's, she's in if we can make it happen. But uh, So you'll want to come over to my house November 1st in the future. And if you really don't like having Christmas lights up, you can come over and complain all about it and everything. And that's okay. And we'll walk you around and say, oh, look at this. Here's Jesus in the nativity. Oh, she's excited. Anyway, um, but yeah, Christmas is a great time of year. And, but, the, but here's the, one of the problems with Christmas and the story. Now, it's a great story, don't get me wrong, but it's just a small piece of the story, right? I mean, the, the Jesus, you know, coming to earth, this, you know, this, uh, this God coming, Emmanuel, I mean, coming to earth and, and this baby being born, and it's a great story. You got the stable, you got the sheep, you got the, you know, the, the, the donkeys, you got the shepherds, you got the wise men, you got presents. I mean, there's a lot of cool things about this story, but it's just one small piece of the whole thing. And, and if we don't understand the whole thing, we actually miss out on the story. We missed out some pieces. Uh, for instance, you know, how many of you guys uh, watched the series, and some won't want to admit this maybe, but Friends, right? The, the show Friends, right? It's a great kind of a show, and I, we grew up with that, um, uh, Debbie and I, but we actually didn't watch it. Neither one of us really watched it when it was like live going through TV, right? And so every once in a while, we would see an episode of Friends, because everybody told us how awesome it was, and how funny it was, and this kind of thing, and we'd watch it, and, and we, I mean, we would laugh, but we would like miss out like there were some pieces that we just didn't quite understand and the reason we didn't understand it is we just didn't know the context we didn't know the history of the stuff that had happened before and so this year we decided that we were going to watch friends actually we started i think a couple years ago right yeah uh and we started watching friends and we watched all 10 episodes and now of uh, 10 seasons it's not episodes <laughs> 10 seasons, lots of episodes. Anyway, uh, but now, and so when we did that, the, the, the episodes that we'd seen before, all of a sudden when we watched them again, it was like, oh man, it's, it's much better now. It's much funnier and much, okay, now we get all the connections. And it's the same with our Christmas story, right? We can, we can do this with any story. Sometimes we break it down into small snippets. But if we take it totally out of context from everything else, we miss some of the stuff that's going on. 
in the very story of this Jesus coming to earth. And so this morning, uh, I actually, as I was prepping the message, uh, and I know I've, we're doing a Hark the Herald Angel Sing series for three weeks as kind of go through that, but as I was prepping this message, I was like, wait a second, I feel like we need context. I, I feel like we need to take a moment and take a Sunday, and I need to do a message where we look at the big picture, that we look at the meta-narrative, as it's called, of Scripture, so that we can understand this story in the context of the whole of what God has revealed to us. And so we're going to do that this morning, and before we get there, though, I wanted to start with it, because it is a Hark Herald Angel Sing, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that hymn real quickly and tell you how it's inspired this message, and then we'll go on to the actual quote-unquote message. Yeah, I know, you're like, started five minutes ago, Sean, let's go. Uh, anyway, so uh, first of all, Hark the Herald Angels Sing was written in, 19, or in 1738 by Charles Wesley. Now, maybe if you're a musician, you know all about Charles Wesley, but he was a prolific, to say the least, hymn writer. 9,000 hymns were attributed to him, he wrote, okay? 9,000, and they figure he had to write like 10, like, 10 like stanzas of hymn, like uh, something like that, 10 lines of, of, of verse every day for like 52 years to get the 9,000. I mean, this is some crazy number. Anyway, it's, this guy wrote a lot. Now, his brother is John Wesley. He's pretty famous as well. Uh, sort of the Methodist, basically, kind of strand of, of uh, church. Uh, but he had a good friend named George Whitfield. Now, George Whitfield is pretty famous as well, right? And so George Whitfield was a great and prolific preacher, right? And he, he did a lot of preaching and just kind of went around. He was known to be actually quite dramatic in his preaching and crying on stage and this kind of thing. And, uh, but anyway, George was a great guy, but he was really good friends with Charles Wesley. And uh, George contributed to this hymn by changing a key line. So originally, the, the, the hymn read, Hark how the welkins ring glory to the king of kings. That's how Charles Wesley wrote it. Well, George didn't like that, and so he changed it to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Uh, Charles, I guess, was not happy about that, but alas, this is what we have today, so obviously George won out on that, and as far as at least popularity. Uh, so the music, the tune, came from a guy named Felix Mendelssohn, who actually lived in the 1800s and died in the uh, late 1840s. And he actually wasn't the one who put the tune to this hymn, but it was actually one of his students named W.H. Uh, Cummings, who in 1856 actually connected one of Mendelssohn's tunes to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and that has come forward to us today, and this is what we have. Uh, the amazing thing, though, I, and one of the things I love about hymns is the fact that uh, they seek, all the hymns seem to, not all of them, but most of the hymns seem to, to, to try to put theology in verse, right? I mean, they're trying to take these, our understanding of these deep theological truths and then put them in a song, and by doing that, uh, it helps us to remember those realities, those theologies, right? And so it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing. Most hymns have just this thick and rich kind of theological history to them. And when you see them, I mean, we remember these songs, right? And we remember the theologies that go with it because they've been put into verse. Now, uh, and those of you who 
maybe a little bit older generation, you have fought maybe for years now to try to keep hymns in our worship uh, on Sunday mornings in churches because the push, of course, has been to become more and more praise songs. And, and I get that, but I agree that we need to maintain a, a sense of these hymns and, and, and a practice of these hymns because of the thick and rich theology that's in there, right? And we need to be able to sing those things that it helps us to remember these theological truths that we need to keep with us. Uh, uh, praise songs, they actually tend to focus more on our experiences, right? And, and how we are experiencing God. And, and so we need actually both of them. We need to have hymns that teach us the theology, and then we need to have praise songs that help us to express that and our experience of that. And that's uh, one of the great things about having Laura is she's really good at using both of those in our uh, worship services and, and including both hymns and praise songs, and it's a great combination. So as I was going through this hymn, I was struck by, again, this sense that we're missing something. I, I, I mean, we begin right away, hark the herald, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Now, reconciled, I mean, that's, that's an important piece. I mean, this is a huge theological reality that we were reconciled to God because of Jesus. But I realized that if I'm going to talk about reconciled, it's like, what does that even mean? What am I getting re reconciled to? And so, so many of us, I think, are, are sometimes our kids, we, we don't give them the full narrative. And so they show up and they hear the Christmas story and they hear the song like this, we're reconciled. And they, what does that even mean? Right? I mean, they, they don't understand all that came before it, before Jesus showed up, why he needed to show up, why he needed to show up the way that he showed up, why he needed to live this life. And so uh, as I was kind of diving into that, I was like, oh my, I think we need to take a Sunday and do what I'm going to do now for the rest of our message. And that is to go through the entire kind of redemptive story. And it starts with God. Right? It, it, and we often think it starts with creation. But it doesn't. It starts with God. God existed before creation. God is eternal. He, he's before it. He's after it. He's all around it. You know, before he created, there was nothing but God. There wasn't a bunch of things going on. There wasn't a bunch of particles floating around. It was just God. But more than that, this God was not just, is not just eternal, but he's also unique. There is nothing like him in the entire universe. Nothing. There's, there is no compare. He has no rival. Now, this is the struggle that we have in trying to understand God because there's nothing in our existence that compares to God. And so every time we try to you know, explain God by using some experience that we had or something that we see in this life, it's always going to be lesser than who God actually is. He's totally unique, nothing like him. And he's also perfect. And, and perfect not just in doing the right thing every time, but perfect in the sense that he has no fragmentation. He, he, you, you can't divide God into little pieces. He isn't just partially something. If he is something, he's all of that something. 
There's no fragmentation in him. But more than that, there's also no potential in him. Now, some of us like, you like the word, and you're like, what? There's no potential? I think God's got a lot of potential. <laughs> yeah, he does, right? Yeah. But I mean, when we see potential from our perspective, right? We, we look at our kid, and they're growing up. And boy, they got a lot of potential musically. I, I think they're going to, you know, maybe make it big sometime and be on, you know, the big stage and, you know, whatever. Or we see them, oh, man, they got a lot of potential in math, or they got a lot of potential in sports. Or they, whatever. So we see potential as a good thing in our lives. But for God, there, he has no potential because, one, he doesn't need to get better. He doesn't need to change. He is perfect the way he is. But more than that, he has no ability to change. I mean, if you are perfect, right, then changing means that you're now either, one, more perfect, which means that you weren't perfect before, right, or less perfect, which means that now you're not perfect anymore right? So God cannot change when we understand that he's perfect. He has no potential. And this is actually a great truth for us, to know that we have a God who will never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is also love. He's, he is love. He doesn't just love. He is love. He is always loving. Anything that is done that's loving is God. God's a part of it. God is love. There's never a time when he's not loving. There's never a time when he ceases to be love. Contradictory, it seems, to this, he's also just Sometimes we struggle to put these together. How can he be love but also judge sin? But it is true. God is just. He always punishes evil. He is always right in his judgments. He never makes a mistake. He always makes the right judgment. He is totally just and will always punish evil. As a matter of fact, it could be said, and it is said, and I say it all the time, but God cannot be love if he's not also just. Because a loving God who allows evil to persist is no longer loving. It is the fact that he is loving is why he is also must be just. Because he has to punish evil. He has to remove evil. He has to destroy evil eventually from this creation that he's made. And God is good. He's always working for our benefit. It's hard for us sometimes to see that. But it's true that God is good. He's always good. He's not just sometimes good. He's not sometimes good and sometimes bad. He's always good. He is always working for our benefit. Always working for our blessing. So it starts with God, but then God does create. He creates this universe. He creates all that we see all that we experience in this world. He created it all. But understand that first and foremost, he created it out of his love as an example, actually, of his love. This is, this, this show, when we look around creation, when we look and see what God has made, it just screams that God loves us. All the blessings that he's provided, all the things that, you know, exactly what we need, it's all here. He's given it to us. But more than that, his creation was made as a receptor of his love. He's designed us to receive his love, to experience his love, 
to know his love. God created humanity a little bit different than the rest of creation in order to fully embrace his love. We've been created in his image, which means that we've been created with at least two things. There's more, more than this in about image, but I'm just going to focus on two things. Two things about being created in God's image means that we as human, in humanity, we all have the ability to be in relationship with him. See, relationship is the key for us to be able to really experience love and to share love. We can't, ha- we can't really love an object. We can only love the things that we can be in relationship with. We can only receive love from the things that we can be in relationship with. And so God created us in his image in order so that we can be receptors of his love, but more than that, so that we can share his love back to him. The second way that we are created in his image is with free will. See, if he had created us robots, again, he would not be able to express his love to us and we couldn't express our love back to him because there'd be no way to have a relationship. The only way to have a relationship and a loving relationship is for there to be free will where people get to choose whether they're going to love each other because love is always a choice. Here's the amazing thing about creation, though. We get critical sometimes of God and this creation that he's made, and we begin to ask questions. Why did you make it this way? I mean, why couldn't it have just been Adam and Eve? You know, they just never ate the apple, and they just, we all get to enjoy this amazing, perfect life for all eternity. Why do we have to deal with this sin thing? Why can't you just, you know, get rid of sin? Why do we have to deal with all of that? But here is the truth. God is all wise. And he knew and knows the best possible creation of all the possible creations that could be made. And the one that he made is that best possible creation. See, for us to say, hey, God, I don't understand. Why didn't you make it this way? I'm sure there's a better way. But understand, we have a God who understands and knows. He knows all things. He's all wise. He knows all the possible ways that could have been done. And he knows that this is the best one because he's a good God. He's a loving God. So when you're wrestling with uh, the struggles of this life and the, and the pain that we sometimes endure, can we just remind ourselves that this is the po- best possible creation that could be made and give praise and glory to him for that. So after his creation, then of course we get to the rebellion. Adam and Eve created for relationship, created with free will, but then they have a choice. See, the understanding, though, is that Adam and Eve, we need to understand that they didn't have, there was no tendency within them to sin. They had no sinful nature. They were created without a sinful nature. They're created perfectly by God. And so we understand when they sinned, it wasn't because they had to. It wasn't because there was something inside them that was pushing them to. It was totally a choice that they made on their own. More than that, there was no reason for them to sin, right? There was no reason for them to rebel from God. God was a loving father. He cared for them, gave them all that they needed. It wasn't like God was lacking in some way, and so, oh, well, we need to take care of ourselves because obviously this God can't take care of us. No, there was no tendency of them to sin, and there was no reason for them to sin. But when temptation came, 
and challenged their perspective of who God was and his goodness. They made a choice, a free will choice to rebel. The amazing thing is that this one act of sin, this one act of rebellion, due to God's perfect economy, condemned all humanity. Again, this is something we struggle with sometimes. I mean, it's not fair, right? I mean, Adam and Eve sinned. Why do I have to pay the price for that? Why does all of mankind and humanity get condemned because of Adam and Eve? Why do we all get born with sinful nature? Because of their mess up. I mean, it's not my fault. But again, of all the perfect or all the possible worlds that God could have created, this is the best one. So next comes condemnation. Because of our rebellion, there's condemnation. Well, what does that look like? First of all, it's a severing of our relationship. We're created for a relationship with our Creator. We sin, rebel against Him, and now that relationship is severed. We lose relationship. We also experience the justness of God. Because God's nature requires that He punishes all rebellion, all sin, all evil. He's got to punish it. More than that, He needs to destroy it. He cannot allow evil to persist. Now, he is allowing evil to be around for a while, but he will, in the end, in the eternal kingdom, right before that begins, right, he will destroy all evil. And for those who are condemned, they look forward to an eternal existence, separated from God's love, God's justice, and God's goodness. It is this state that we are in for a couple thousand years in humanity. Struggling with sinful nature. Struggling with trying to make it through, but also knowing that at the end of our life, we're going to die. And we're going to pay the price for our sin. And then Jesus showed up. The birth. This is why the birth is a big deal. Thousands of years of struggling and striving to do it on our own. The, the Old Testament is, the, the laws and everything, they're there to show us, first of all, what is God's you know, will, but also to show us that even if it would have been us in the garden, we still would have failed. We still would have sinned. We still would have given in and made the wrong choice and rebelled against God. And so for thousands of years, the people of, uh, of the world are struggling with sin, struggling with sinful nature, struggling with the reality that they're all going to die, fearful of that day when it comes, and, 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 and trying to escape it as best they can, knowing that they're going to be, they'll pay for their sin. And then Jesus shows up as a baby. He was created, actually, and I want to be clear about this. He was created, Jesus, excuse me, the man was created like Adam. See, Jesus existed for all time. He's God, right? He's, he's with God before creation began and all of that, John 1, chapter 1. But Jesus, the man, was created like Adam. 
He was created in relationship with the capacity to be in relationship with God and the capacity of free will to make his own choices. You see, he was born a virgin, from a virgin because that was the way to protect him from the sinful nature that Adam had passed down to all who came after him because of his sin. So that's why we have this virgin birth is because we needed to have create, God needed to create another man like the Adam, like the first man, first Adam, that was free again able to have that choice in relationship. And because of that, Jesus is our second chance. And Jesus took that second chance and he lived perfectly. He loved perfectly. He chose to love every time. He chose to live out a loving life. He chose to follow Jesus, even though he was tempted. He was tempted in every way that mankind has always been tempted. The same things that came to everyone else came to Jesus. But when it came time to make a choice, he chose to follow God. He always did God's will. And by doing so, he fulfilled the law. He lived that perfect life life that Adam and Eve didn't live. But then he comes to the end of his life, and he dies. See, the economy of God is that when you rebel, you face his wrath. You are condemned to death. You face the punishment for your sin. But Jesus never sinned, and then he dies. This, this, is, out of, this is not right. What happened? Jesus isn't supposed to die because he's, he's never sinned. He, he shouldn't have, death should have no power over him. Yet he died. He was perfect and he died, but why did he die? He died so that he could take our punishment. See, he, re- he received what we all deserve. And he did it willingly. Right? Sometimes it can, we can think that, you know, well, oh, well, God the Father said, all right, Jesus, this is, this is the plan. You've got to do it, so head on down there. Be a good boy. Do your, do your part. No, 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 that's not it. God the Father loves us, but Jesus willingly came. He always had a choice, even up to the end, the last moment. This is what the Garden of Gethsemane is all about. On the night he gets crucified, is this struggle point. God, if there's any other way, any other way to save these people, let me know because I, I, I'm really worried about going through this. This is going to be a tough one. And he still made the choice. He willingly made the choice. He wasn't manipulated into it. His arm wasn't twisted. And when he made that choice and he died and gave his life on the cross for us, God's wrath was satisfied. You see, Because God is just, he has to punish sin. He can't just overlook our sin. He can't just say, okay, well, okay, you you were pretty good today, so we're just going to let that one go, all right? And and we're just going to over... No. God who is just has to punish all sin. And all sin was punished at the cross. See, it goes back to God's perfect economy, his perfect creation. 
because just like one man's sin condemned all of humanity, so one man's perfect life and willing sacrifice made salvation possible for everyone. And then he rose from the dead. After three days in the tomb, I mean, he's dead, right? He's probably starting to stink a bit by now. Three days, right? I mean, his body's starting, you know, I mean, this is, this, this is the idea that it's not just, you know, he kind of fell asleep for a couple hours and then he came back. Oh, well, look, at he rose from the dead. No, no, he was in the tomb for three days. The sword was pierced his side and blood and water flowed. He was dead. But then he rose. And he was the first of his kind to rise because others had risen from the dead, right? Even Jesus had brought some back from the dead, but they would die again. Jesus, no, he was the first to rise from the dead to never die again. And because he rose from the dead, two huge things happened. First, he broke the chains of sin. See, because he paid the price for our sin, now that God's wrath had been satisfied and poured out on him and paid, made payment for all that sin, now we are freed from that sin. We can now make a choice again. We're given the free will that we were created with at the beginning of time. We can now, once again, make a choice to not sin and to choose Jesus. But more than that, he stripped death of its power. See, death has command, had commanded mankind for thousands of years. Everyone knew that someday, at some point, they would be in the grave. They could never avoid death. But then Jesus rises from the dead, the first time ever, and destroyed and stripped the power of death over mankind. And now we can have hope for eternity to know that just like Jesus, we can rise again. And because of these amazing truths that we've been, the chains of sin have been broken and death has been stripped of its power, we also have been given reconciliation. We have freedom once again, that free will to choose relationship with Jesus. And this is what reconciliation is all about. You see, without the context before reconciliation, what are we getting reconciled about? Why is this a big deal? I mean, I just need to say, I'm sorry, God, that I made those sins. Can you just forgive me and let's move on? Now, that's, that doesn't work. The reconciliation is bigger than that. We need to understand the eternal implication. Implications, there we go. The eternal implications of our sin. And that it's not just a matter of us saying, I'm sorry, that we needed someone to die for us. We needed Jesus to show up. This is why he had to show up as a baby, because he needed to live the life of humanity. He needed to be a real man, not just a God man. He needed to be a real flesh and blood man who has lived among us, who has been tempted in every way like we are, and said no to those temptations, and instead loved God in return. We needed all of that. We needed someone who would live that perfect life and then willingly give their life at the end in order to take the punishment for our sin. That is the only way that, that we have an opportunity for reconciliation. It's because of all of these things that we can now choose God. But now we don't choose him alone. We choose him through 
Jesus, the mediator. You see, because it's his righteousness, we can't live righteous right now. Not until we get to eternity. We can't live holy. And it's not about our ability to live holy lives. It's about the fact that Jesus lived that holy life. It's about us bowing our knees to Jesus as Lord. See, this is the way God designed it. This is the economy of God. Is that if we want access to Him, if we want to enjoy that relationship again, we can only do it through Jesus because of His righteousness. And that way, none of us can brag. Right? None of us can say, oh, look at me, God, I deserve this. We're all sinful. But also, it means that it's all about grace. And it's a way for God to pour out His love into our life, knowing that we don't deserve any of it. The moment we bow our knee to Jesus, God accepts us. He receives us into his family. We we don't have to live our life right, and then he'll accept us. We don't have to jump through all these hoops in order to make him happy and appease him. He's already been appeased. Jesus took care of that. We don't have to go to church. We don't have to do all of these things. We don't have to, you know, go and become an evangelist. You don't have to be a missionary. You, You don't have to do anything except for bow your knee to Jesus as Lord, and you are saved. Accepted into God's family. But once we are saved, it does lead to this thing called sanctification. This is something I've been spending a lot of time as we've looked at and we've cast new vision for our church and, and talking about that because I, I think we need to have a clear understanding of what sanctification is. Sanctification is not about us uh, trying to gain relationship with God. So often we think, oh, we we come to Jesus and we bow down and we kneel to him as Jesus is Lord and then we stand up and we begin to work to try to get closer to God, try to develop that relationship. Oh, I I want more of God. No, no, no. At the moment we bow our knee to Jesus, we receive all of God. He cannot be fragmented. If we have God, we have all of him. If we're in relationship with him, we have all of that relationship. It's not about us striving to get more of Jesus. It's about us recognizing what we already have and trying to enjoy it it's also not about righteousness we think oh sanctification is all about me living a holy life about me living righteously about me you know towing the line that i've got to got to make sure oh if i don't do this right well then oh god's gonna get mad like that somehow that sin isn't already paid for but this is how we live sanctification. We're trying to, you know, it's all about behavior modi- modification. If I get my behavior right, then God will be pleased with me, and then I'm going to get more blessings. But that is not what sanctification is about. It's about enjoying the righteousness of Jesus. Yes, we want to live rightly, but not so that we can gain appeasement from God or, or blessings from God. We want to live rightly because we are so thankful for what Jesus has done for us. It's the love that he's passed, that he's poured into our lives that we want to respond to and give him love in return. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We are one with him. This is, this is radical. This is just shocking. But we need to get our mind around the fact that we are one with the Spirit, that he lives inside of us. We are saved no matter how we live, no matter how we think. We are saved when we've bowed our knee to Jesus as Lord. 
and we receive all of the relationship, all of the righteousness, that we get credit for all of Jesus' righteousness, and we are one with the Spirit. So sanctification is not about obtaining these things, it's about increasing our awareness, our experience of what we already have. As the vision statement says, to fully enjoy our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in that sanctification, we also realize there's an opportunity for celebration. See, this is when it's, when it's not about us, when it's not about my righteousness, when it's not about me earning God's favor, then all we can do is stand back and worship. We give praise and thanks to Jesus for all that he's done. See, so often we try to work so that we kind of get some of the credit. No. When we recognize that it's all about Jesus, then we can just give praise and thanks. We have hope restored because we know it's not about me living right. Folks, we're going to continue to mess up, right? We're going to continue to sin. We're not going to be able to do it. And it's not that we give up. It's that we don't condemn ourselves when we fail. We recognize, ah, I failed. Okay, God still loves me. My relationship is still the same. I can still celebrate him. I still have hope for eternity. It's about grace and mercy. God's, not ours. It's about his work and what he did. These are the things we celebrate. We celebrate by giving our life to proclaiming God's love, God's justness, and God's goodness. All right, the final kind of point of the story is eternity. This is what we're all looking forward to. Jesus returns, right? I mean, this is the excitement, my excitement thing, right? This is, this is when the party really begins, right? Jesus is coming back. He's going to return. He's going to come here, and when he does, he's abolishing sin. He's abolishing and wiping out evil, and all the consequences of sin and evil are going to be gone, and now it's just going to be this amazing, perfect existence. It's going to go back to, in a sense, the original order of things, the way God originally created it, to be perfect and to be loving and to be walking in the garden with God, side by side. Beautiful thing. And at the end of time, those who have rejected Jesus will go on to eternal destruction. And those who have accepted Jesus will enter this amazing eternal kingdom. And in that eternal kingdom, we will experience the full benefit of this relationship that we have, the righteousness of Jesus, and the indwelling of the Spirit. See, we need to have this context. And I know, I know that you guys know this. I don't think I gave probably very much new information to anybody in here. That, that many of you already know these, this story. You've already understand kind of the biblical scope, the biblical narrative, and where this is all coming from. And, and we just kind of automatically think about it when we get to maybe the birth of Jesus, right? It's Christmas, and we, we talk about the birth of Jesus, and we don't talk about stuff beforehand because, you know, it's just about the birth of Jesus. But in our heads, we're going, oh, yeah, well, that's because of this and this and this. But do we ever say it? Do we ever communicate it? 
It's his story. And we need to share his story in completion. I think sometimes our, our world is missing it when we're just focused on this baby Jesus. And, I mean, a lot in our world can really get excited about that. Oh, I mean, this is so sweet and it's cuddly and it's this manger scene. And, you know, so we get this kind of, you know, this sweet kind of image of Christmas, which it is, right? I mean, I'm not taking that away. But, but it's more than that. When we understand who this Jesus is, who this baby is who's in the manger, when we understand the context of time and what has been going on and what he means for us, it all of a sudden gets to be a bigger deal. And, and I think sometimes, I think back when we were raising our kids and we'd you know, sit around the Christmas tree and read the Christmas story, right? And, and, and it was always just the, the, the narrative of Jesus' birth. And it always lacked the rest of the story. And, and I, I wonder, it's like, did, did they really even understand? Do our kids really even understand why this Jesus showing up was so important? I mean, do they get the context? Or is it just a sweet story? And so I just, I guess maybe this Christmas I encourage us all to look for opportunities to not only think about the rest of the story and why the nativity is such a big deal, but also look for ways to communicate it. Look for opportunities to share it with our kids, with our grandkids, with our neighbors. I mean, if you're on social media, on social media, I mean, can, can we do something more than just Jesus is the reason for the season? I mean, that's a great slogan. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, it's great. I love it, right? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. But, but, but can we, there's more to it, right? That just, that kind of dumbs it down to a point where sometimes we forget, well, why is Jesus the reason for the season? Just because he was born at this really cool time? You know, it's a virgin birth, and I mean, in the stable, I mean, it's all cool, a big star, and you know, they got the sheep, bang, you know, going around, all around, right? Is that why it's a big deal? No. It's because everything that's happened before it and everything that happens after it, we need the context of the story so that then we can enjoy the little snippet of the story that we get in the holidays. All right, worship team, why don't you come on up? Christmas is one of my favorite times of year, and I, I confess that, uh, you know, as the Lord led me in this message, it, I, I found it a bit convicting for me, too, as I even just shared about the raising of my own kids and not giving maybe them the whole story. It's not that they didn't get it other places, but, I mean, to put the Christmas story in context, I think, is important. And, and so I, I find myself a bit challenged by that as well as I look to the next few weeks and how I can do that. Um, what can I do to draw attention to the bigger story? People, the truth is that people aren't saved by the baby Jesus. They're saved by the risen Lord. And so, if we're only focusing, I think, on Jesus, I think we just need to expand it. It's an opportunity. Anytime we're talking about Jesus, it's an opportunity to share the gospel, right? And so, may we just, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm asking and what I'm encouraging myself to do, let's take those opportunities to share the gospel, the whole story, not just the baby story, the whole story, to anybody that God leads us to and gives us the opportunity.